Hello, this is the Buddhist Rambler. Welcome to the podcast. The intention of this podcast is to give you everything that you need to know in order to get on the path to attaining nibbana. Um, it's one of those things that's easy enough to say, but that's a huge deal. It's impossible to overstate how massive a deal that is. So this is a big task we have ahead of us. It is possible, though. You won't need to retreat to the foothills of the Himalayas. You won't need to find some old, wizened, bearded monk and beg them to teach you, like some scene out of The Karate Kid or anything to that effect. You can do it from wherever you happen to be. And I would say with just a couple of hours a day throughout the day, that should be sufficient enough to get you in the right direction. So without further ado, let's get into it. This episode is going to be about the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths has the entire spectrum of Buddha Dharma encoded into it. And so it is the perfect place to start. Now, a recurring theme that you'll find throughout the series that I'm going to discuss is that we have mundane understanding of things and the noble understanding of things. So what's the difference? Well, a mundane spiritual tradition or a mundane religion or a mundane understanding of things is not sufficient enough to attain nibbana. So comprehending the associated truth of that thing will not result in nibbana. By contrast, the noble understanding of things well now if we think about buddhism there is a mundane version of buddhism in fact there are many many mundane versions of buddhism by contrast there is only one noble version of buddhism now this alone is a statement might be contentious and might ruffle some feathers but if you think about it it couldn't be any other way What we're saying here is that the truth is a particular way and there is only one way that the truth is. It's like saying that 2 plus 2 is 4, unambiguously so, and it cannot be anything else. It's not 5.6, it's not 367.3 recurring, it's 4. And there are precise reasons for why it's 4 and not something else. So that might not seem relevant now, but it will do as we continue. So the mundane translation for the first truth is that life is suffering. The first truth states that there is a problem, and that problem is the central existence. Excuse me, is the central problem to existence. So it's not just a problem, it is the problem. And as we're doing this, I need you to actively engage with me without sounding patronizing because it's it's easy with, with certainly for me with podcasts and audiobooks and stuff to just kind of listen in the background. You really need to think through every step here. So when we're saying it's not a problem, it's the problem to sen- it's the central problem to existence. It's not something that can be swept under the rug. It's not something that could be ignored. It's it's unavoidable and it affects every aspect of existence every aspect of your life every aspect of reality 
Now, the mundane translation for what this problem is, is that life is suffering. Now, let's think about what I said earlier. With a mundane truth or a mundane translation, it's not sufficient enough to attain nibbana. So the mundane translation for this is life is suffering. Well, this is something that pretty much everyone can agree upon. Everyone can come to realize that we have parents and grandparents that die. And when we're kids, we're, we're introduced to this concept of death because you know, we lose our grandparents or we lose whoever it happens to be. And we, we start to get a sense that suffering is an inescapable part of life. Furthermore, you can have an atheist, by way of an example, it's not limited to them, but just for this example, you can have an atheist understand that life is suffering, but what's the issue? Well, the issue is that, as far as they're concerned, the problem of existence, i.e. that life is suffering, will resolve itself upon death. Because an atheist believes that consciousness exists as a consequence of there being physical matter. So as soon as the physical matter is is removed, i.e. the body, then the consciousness will no longer exist. And so if there's no consciousness, there can be no you to suffer, which which all makes perfect sense. Um, But it's wrong. (laughs) But it is wrong. So an atheist will recognize, okay, life is shit, life is suffering, life is terrible. You could have an incredibly horrible, crappy life where you're sold into slavery, tortured, and God knows what else. But if you're an atheist, you'd be consoled by the idea that, you know what? Yes, I am suffering, and all of that sucks. But when I die, which won't be too far away, if you only live for 100 years at most, when I die, that will be the end to my suffering, and therefore the central problem to existence resolves itself. So hopefully this this explanation um, helps us to appreciate that life is suffering, quote-unquote, is not sufficient enough to describe the first noble truth. It's a mundane truth that will lead to mundane results. But it's a good enough point to start from, so let's flesh it out a little bit further. So we need to think about the worldview of Buddha Dharma. And as a tangent here, everything that's said, no matter how far out it seems, is verifiable. You do not need to have blind faith in it. You can actually investigate all of these things in your own direct experience for yourself. Now, of course, there are some things that will be more difficult and more challenging to see for yourself um, and other things which you'll be able to recognize more readily. Um, So obviously what you do, you start by verifying the things that are easier to verify and then you progressively work on to the more challenging things. But the important point here is that everything can be verified. So, um, in the secular societies, most people just believe that there are two kinds of realms of existence. You have the human realm and you have the animal realm, both of which we can observe, right? There are animals existing and there are humans existing. But if you're an atheist or if you're an agnostic, you will be under the impression that you are a human, you're a human once, and that's the only existence that you have. But in Buddha Dharma, it's the case 
that there are actually lots of different realms of existence. The animal realm and the human realm are just two. So the human realm is in the middle, and it's a spectrum in terms of suffering and well-being. We, as humans, are roughly in the middle in terms of where that spectrum is. So we have, roughly speaking, a balance between suffering and well-being. The realms below us progressively have more and more suffering. So there's the animal realm, where there is absolutely more suffering. And then you have a realm uh, which is translated as hungry ghosts, where basically it's comprised of beings where they are suffering all the time from starvation and from being constantly thirsty. So basically they have desires, basic uh, sort of essential desires that they are incapable of satisfying. So they cannot eat they can never satiate their appetite. They, they can never get full. And they're, they're always thirsty. And so that's that realm. And then you have a surah realm of demons, where they are, they're basically constantly fighting. There's constant conflict, constant anger. And then you have the hell realm. Uh, lots of religions and spiritual traditions have this one. And it's where there's the most amount of suffering. So it's non-stop suffering in the hell realms, and there's no relief from suffering whatsoever. Above the human realm, the opposite happens. You experience less and less suffering, more and more well-being, to the point where uh, there's almost no suffering at all. So the realm directly above us is called the Dewa realm. Now, if it weren't obvious, based upon how I've been speaking so far, these uh, spheres or realms have realms within them. They have kind of sub-realms within them. And you can actually see evidence for this in the human realm. You, know, you have some people. Uh, a common thing you'll hear people say is they'll say, oh, well, it's not fair. Why is it that this person is, is rich and good-looking and intelligent, and then this person is suffering and has all these issues? Well, there's a reason why that's the case, and we'll get on to that later, but you do have these uh, levels, for lack of more elegant terminology, within the human realm, too, and within the animal realm. Uh, for instance, we can observe within the human realm that it would be more preferable to be born within uh, a wealthy family, that uh, where you live in a nice neighborhood, free from crime, and access to great schools, and so on and so forth. As an animal, it would be much more preferable to be born as a domesticated cat than it would be, say, a gazelle in, you know, in Africa or something. So going back to the Dewa realm, which is the realm immediately above us, this is what many spiritual traditions, especially the Abrahamic ones, regard as being heaven. And they perceive this as being uh, everlasting heaven. So lasting, this goes on forever, eternal happiness, right? And as you can imagine, it's much, much more pleasurable to be here. There's, it, it is the height of sense pleasure. Right? So if you think of every way that we experience as pleasures, well, there's five ways or six ways, right? You can think a thought that's a source of pleasure, you can see something that's pleasurable, hear, smell, taste, touch. So just imagine a realm where 
all of your senses are being satisfied to the maximum. And that's basically what Devavaram is like. And then above that, there's a realm called the Rupavakara realm. That's the Pali term. And this is even more refined as an experience, and it's even more blissful. There's even less suffering here. And we won't get into details about that too much right now. And then above that, there is the Arupa Vikara realm, where that is the highest point in, in reality. It's the highest point in reality and has the absolute least amount of suffering. So the important point to consider here is that we are, the animal and the human realms are the, not the only realms of existence. There are realms of existence below us where there is much, much, much more suffering. And there are realms above us where there's hardly any suffering at all. But there is a problem, and the problem is this. Reality is infinite. Uh, you never haven't existed. This is another thing you need to stop and pause, stop to pause and think about. You have always existed. You've never not existed. So whereas you perceive this life as being your one and only life, the reality is that you have had an infinite number of existences, you never haven't existed and you never won't exist. That is until you attain Nirvana. Spoiler alert. Um, so the problem is, is that you could go to one of these realms that I just described, the really pleasant realms, where there's orgasmic bliss for millions, billions, trillions of years even. But it is a drop in the ocean in the grand scheme of things. It is an absolute drop in the ocean. And you will eventually go to realms where there is much, much, much more suffering. Right, so you know, it's basically like taking a vacation. You can have a vacation that's really, really pleasant for a short period of time, but that vacation will come to an end. And when it ends, you're going to end up somewhere where there's much more suffering. Now, what the what the first noble truth really says to revisit it now because we're starting to flesh it out a bit more now now that we've established this context is that life is suffering yes but we need to think that okay reality is infinite we've always existed we never won't exist and why is life suffering the reason why life is suffering is because we will spend the overwhelming majority of our time in the lower four realms where there is the most amount of suffering, okay? That is where we will spend the most amount of time. We will, on occasion, rarely, have these experiences where we go to the higher realms and we have blissful existences, but they pale in comparison to how much time we spend in the lower four realms. There's actually a sutta where the Buddha describes how rare it is to become a human now, I don't know if you've watched Interstellar, but suppose that there is a planet that is um, engulfed in water. The whole planet is water. And imagine that there's a yoke. Now, for those of you who don't know, a yoke is something, is the device that you put over cattle or 
cows or horses in order to pull a cart. So you put it over their neck and it, and then you're able to get that animal to pull the cart. So imagine that on this water island, excuse me, this water planet, there is a yoke floating on the surface and there is a turtle in the water. And once every hundred years, the turtle rises to the surface of the water and sticks its head out. Now, the Buddha said that the chances of you having an existence as a human are as unlikely as a turtle, as this turtle, coming to the surface once every hundred years and just so coincidentally managing to stick its head through the yoke. Now, think about that. We've got a whole planet covered in water, and it just so happens that the turtle sticks its head through the yoke. That's how unlike it is that you'll have a human existence, let alone existences in the higher realms. So now we're really starting to get a sense of what the problem is. The problem is, is that we will spend the overwhelming majority of our time in realms where there is uh, an overwhelming amount of suffering. Now, I've got an article to accompany uh, this podcast, and I'm going to read an excerpt of it for you here to really get the point across. Okay. Suppose that World War Three has kicked off. You're a sound mind and body, so have been drafted to the front lines. You've spent most of your time on battlefields and in trenches. You're always terrified. You're constantly hungry and thirsty and are subjected to things you wouldn't want even your worst enemy to go through. This is what the lower four realms is like. And again, most of your time is spent here. Now suppose that you get injured and are sent to the medical wing where you recover for a week. That's what existence is like as a human. The chaos and carnage of the battlefield is still very close, so you're not completely safe. But it's a noticeable improvement nonetheless. Excuse me, I'm going to take a second. Once the week has passed, you're sent back to the trenches. Now imagine that you and your comrades are able to take a month off and visit family. This is much more pleasant. You're among loved ones and in an idyllic setting. This is what an existence in the Dewa realm is akin to, which again is what many spiritual traditions and religions regard of as, as think of as heaven. However, once that month has passed, you'll more than likely get sent back to the trenches. Lastly, imagine a year or so without war. During that time, there's only love and peace. That's analogous to being in the highest realms of existence. But of course, once those few years have passed, you're probably going to end up back on the battlefield. So you can see that even the most preferable outcome only provides a temporary solution to the issue. This is what reality is like, and it's precisely why the Buddha did not teach beings to have existences in the higher realms, because he knew that it wouldn't solve the central problem to existence. So with all of that in mind, we are now getting a clearer picture of the first noble truth. There is no beginning or end to existence, and the overwhelming majority of our time is spent in realms where suffering is the dominant state. So that is the first noble truth. That is it. Okay, so we're going to move on to the second noble truth here. 
And this, this, the mundane version of the second noble truth is that there are root causes for the central problem of existence. It states that there are root causes, and these root causes are greed, hatred, and ignorance. Now, when we say ignorance, we don't just mean ignorance of general knowledge or anything to that effect. We mean ignorance of the true nature of reality. This is what we're going to be covering in the next episode, so I'm not going to get into it in detail here. But we perceive reality as being a particular way. And as a consequence of perceiving reality in that way, we experience these two fundamental expressions of ignorance, which manifest as greed and hatred. And these three root causes are the reasons why we are experiencing this central problem of existence. So uh, let's think about greed and hatred a little bit more. Um, Excuse me. Greed is not necessarily the right right word for it because you can experience degrees, right? You can experience just mildly wanting something or you can experience intense desire with, to the point where it almost incapacitates you. Really, it's the case that you, in any given moment, you want something to be the case. Right? You have a preference. You want things to be a particular way. That's really what it is. is You want things to be a particular way. Now, like I just said, importantly, that could just be a small thing. For instance, you walk into a room and it's air-conditioned and it's actually too cold for you and you'd rather it be warmer. Or it could also be the case that, uh, you know, you, you lust after a person so much that you find attractive that all you can think about is them. And just thinking about them actually kind of uh, gives you this painful experience. Right, so there are degrees. So you want things to be a particular way. Now, the flip side of this coin is that you also want things to not happen. You want things to not be a particular way. Right, so you want, and this is the critical point to notice, is that you cannot have one without the other. So long as you want things to be a particular way, you will also have the experience of not wanting things to be a particular way. So for instance, if you want a room to be 23 degrees and not too humid, and the room is 17 degrees and really cold, okay, well then you're going to experience that suffering. Now, it's really important to understand at this point that Dharma, Buddha Dharma, is not just a bunch of abstract ideas that have no basis. No, no, so no, no bearing on reality. This isn't just philosophizing. It's not a bunch of rules for living a good life or anything like that, okay? Right? It's not as if Cura didn't exist two and a half thousand years ago, and so they just did this instead. No, this is an accurate account of how reality operates at a fundamental level. And also, Buddha Dharma encompasses a tremendous amount. The scope is just unimaginable. And on one occasion, the Buddha actually described how much he knew um, compared to how much is necessary to know in order to attain nibbana. He he knows an incomparable amount more than what you really need to know to 
attain nibbana. So we don't need to know everything. We just need to know the central problem of existence. This is a tangent, um, but it, it could be fascinating, for instance, to learn about space, to learn about planets, to learn about physics and chemistry and all these amazing subjects. But you actually don't need to know about all of those things because it doesn't pertain to the central problem of existence. You just need to know about the problem and how to solve that problem. All right, so to really uh, understand this second noble truth, we need to start talking about the five aggregates, okay? Um, the five aggregates are your experience of reality in its entirety. So uh, something important to bear in mind is when the Buddha says the world, he means the five aggregates, basically. They're synonymous. Right. And so the world in, in Buddhist terminology really means your experience of the world in its entirety. So there are five. The first five is called Rupa, and it is material form as well as your impressions of the material form. So what do I mean by that? Well, I've got a flask in front of me right now that I'm drinking from. And I, there is the material form of the flask itself. I can, I can, you know, it's definitely there, yeah? <laughs> it produces a sound, it has a weight and so on and so forth. But then there is my impression of this flask, right? So there's my impression of its visual form, of its shape, of its contour, of the light, of the color. There's my impression of the sound that it produces when I tap it. There's my impression of its weight and so on and so forth. So it's both the material form itself and your impression of the material form. And this relates to all the senses, right? So a rupa can be something that you see. It can also be something that you hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. To, to really explain this, let's choose an example of having a Ferrari. Well, let's think about rupa in relation to this Ferrari. Well, you can have chakra rupa, which would be the visual rupa of this Ferrari, which is seeing the Ferrari. But if you go inside and the Ferrari has leather seats, well, then you can also smell the Ferrari. Once you turn on the ignition and you hear the engine, you can hear the Ferrari. If you are a very strange and weird person, you could taste the Ferrari, although I suggest you don't do that. <laughs> you can touch the Ferrari and you can think about the Ferrari as well. So all of those are Rupa. Now, the next one is Vedana. The next aggregate of reality is Vedana. And there are two kinds of Vedana here. We're going to discuss the first one, which is recognizing that a sensory input has occurred. So if we think about the Ferrari example again, um, the, at, at first, in terms of the sequence of events, um, there, is a, there is a Ferrari, right? But we don't even know what it is at this point. There's just the processing, there's just sensing of inputs. That's the first part, that's the Rupa. But then Vedana says, ah, a sense, a sensory experience is occurring. That's the role of Vedana. The Vedana says, sensory experience is occurring. And of all six of the sensory experiences, it is a visual sensory experience. So that is what a Vedana does. It says, sensory experience is taking place, and it's a visual sensory experience, or it's a hearing sensory experience, and so on and so forth. 
so we've established so far rupert there is a ferrari right or, or rather rupert there is a center experience going on Badena is there is a center experience and it is the experience of seeing and then sanya is your perception of that thing with the important consideration that it's both subjective and objective so for instance you know that you can see a sign like a stop sign if you're walking around in a city or you're driving a car in a city uh, we all know what that means objectively but then you can have your subjective interpretation or your subjective understanding of what a sign means as well or what uh, what a thing means if if you see a police officer and you have lots of police officers in your family you'll probably perceive them in a more positive fashion than if you're to be discriminated against and beaten up by police okay so it's the same thing but your perception of that thing will change based upon a bunch of variables so to bring it back to this example the rupa is sensory experience is taking place a vedana is uh, acknowledging that it's taking place and that of all the ones it could be it's seeing and then sanya is the perception of aha it is a car and not only is it a car but it's a ferrari okay so those are those kinds of perception that go on that sanya the fourth category is another kind of vedana it's called samfasa javedana now when you make contact with the rupa when you make contact with the material form in your mind and you have recognized what it is you have perceived it you then get an ex- a feeling corresponding to your attachment of the thing so let's say you have a liking for ferraris you have a positive attachment or a lustful attachment to ferraris then upon perceiving that it is a ferrari you will then um you will then experience a positive feeling but it's only at the point where you have perceived it so only at the point where you have recognized it is a car and of all the cars that it could be it is a ferrari that you'll have this positive feeling of course there could be other people that hate cars and they'll experience a negative feeling here's another example the rupa is uh, the sound of a dog barking vedana is recognizing that hearing is taking place and then sanya is recognizing that the sound that is happening is the sound of a dog barking now suppose that you're bitten by a dog when you're a kid well then you have this negative perception of dogs it scares you and everything so then the samfasa vedana which is the fourth one the fourth aggregate would be a negative feeling associated with the sound of a dog barking it's, it's, so now what we have excuse me that's not the fourth that's kind of like the third but anyway not important so now we're going to move on to the next aggregate which is sankara so sankara are you can think of them for the time being as actions that you take there are three kinds of actions um there are intuitive actions and and it's kind of an oxymoron phrasing it in that fashion but it will do for the time being but what i mean by an intuitive action is one that happens automatically based upon your preferences your characteristics your habits your likes and dislikes um you know your qualities your attributes so an action will emerge 
of its own accord based upon all of those things, based upon your preferences, basically. That's an intuitive action. And it unfolds so quickly that you can't really exercise, well, you can't categorically exercise any control over it. The second kind of sankara is um, is called vachi sankara. And this is consciously thinking. This is consciously thinking. So this is thinking that you can actually recognize, you actually hear a dialogue in your head. It can also take place in the shape of pictures um, you know, and having like a movie-like experience. That's Vachi Sankara as well. And it could also be uh, you speaking to someone too, or speaking out loud or speaking to yourself or something. And then the third and final one you have is Kaya Sankara, which is bodily actions. So now suppose that you're walking down the streets and you see someone and this is an attractive person and you are a sexual human being. And so you like attractive people, certainly of this gender. And so the Mano Sankara, which is the intuitive action, is you thinking something to the effect of, oh, look, it's an attractive person. I like attractive people. This is something I should pay attention to. Now, of course, I'm being tongue-in-cheek here. You're not going to verbalize it to yourself in that way because it unfolds within fractions of a second, hundredths of a second. It unfolds extremely quickly. There's no dialogue associated with it. But the implication of the thought will basically be like that. then the Vati Sankara of consciously thinking will be you consciously thinking <clears throat> about this attractive person, thinking, wow, they look so, so attractive, they're my type. And you'll think something to the effect of, oh, I should take another look at them, <clears throat> which leads us to the third kind of Sankara, where you take the physical action. And maybe what you do now is you turn your head to look over your shoulder to check them out more. So those are the three kinds of actions that we can take, and that's Sankara. Now, the final category we have, you're doing so well, the final category we have is called Vijnana, and for the sake of ease, for the time being, it's consciousness, okay? So it's our overall conscious experience of the event that took place. Right. So we have Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. The Rupa is a sensory experience is taking place. There is a Ferrari. The Vedana is of all the sensory experiences that it could be, it happens to be the case that on this occasion we are seeing. The Sanya is uh, we are seeing a car, and it's not just any car, it's a Ferrari. The Sankara is to say, ah, I like Ferraris, I really like Ferraris. Uh, it's a beautiful car. Uh, I wish I had a car, my, a Ferrari myself. And then you start to look at it in more detail. Maybe you actually open it up and get inside it to enjoy the experience more. Well, then the vinyana is your overall conscious experience of that thing, as well as, importantly, as well as the expectation you have of this experience. So in the case of the Ferrari, the expectation you have is to enjoy this experience of being in the Ferrari and getting a kick out of it because you love cars, you're a car enthusiast. So those are the those are the um, 
that's your experience of reality in its entirety. So when you're experiencing the world or experiencing reality, there's nothing that will fall beyond those five categories. Uh, the next thing we need to look at is the three characteristics of nature. And we're going to tie the three characteristics of nature to the five aggregates. And then we're going to be able to get a sense of what the second truth is. Okay. So the, um, the three characteristics of nature will be the topic for the next one. So we're going to look at them very quickly here, just very, very quickly. But they're, as the name suggests, they are underlying inescapable qualities that reality possesses, right? They are fundamental. It's not the case that they're correct some of the time or applicable some of the time. In some instances, they're always applicable. They never won't be. The first characteristic is that you cannot maintain anything to your satisfaction. You cannot have anything be the way you want it to be, and you cannot keep it that way. Because of that, there's nothing in the world that is a source of absolute lasting fulfillment. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is that because there's nothing in the world that is a source of lasting fulfillment, um, attaching to things with the belief that the opposite is the case just leads to your suffering, right? Because there's nothing that can actually fulfill you in the world, you only end up suffering by trying to experience lasting fulfillment. And the third characteristic is that because these two things are the case, it's futile to cling to anything in the world. Um, it's pointless, basically. It's completely pointless because there's nothing that will fulfill you. So long as you believe that there are things that are worth attaching to, you're helpless. You're completely deluded. You're just aimlessly wandering. So those are the three characteristics of nature so now we have enough to piece together the second noble truth the second noble truth says that the central problem of existence occurs when someone believes that the five aggregates are of nature sukha and arta nature so we just looked at a nature dukkha and an arta nature now, if someone perceives reality as being Nietzsche, Sukha, Anatta, it means they perceive it in the opposite way, which means that they have not comprehended the true nature of reality. So Nietzsche is when someone thinks that it is possible to have things the way they want them to be, and it's possible to keep them that way, and therefore there are things in life that are a source of absolute everlasting happiness and fulfillment. So, uh, the next characteristic the wrong way of looking at things is you think because that's the case because i can have things be the way i want them to be because i can keep them that way there are sources of lasting fulfillment and reality is overwhelmingly a source of pleasure and happiness and therefore because that's the case reality is substantive it is valuable it is meaningful and it is worth holding on to so what the second noble truth says is that when you regard the world as being of nature, sukha, and arta nature in the way that I just described, and when you experience the, when you think the five aggregates are that way, in other words, they are a source of lasting fulfillment, they are a source of pleasure, 
and therefore they are valuable and are worth holding on to. You suffer. So attaching to the five aggregates with the belief that they can lead to lasting pleasure, lasting fulfillment, and lasting happiness, and and that they are valuable and worth holding on to. That is what creates this central problem as existence of you wandering through the suffering-filled samsara. Okay, we're going to wrap this up very soon because I know I've just given you a lot of information, just five more minutes. So the third truth is that it is possible to overcome the central problem of existence. You overcome the central problem by removing the three root causes of greed, hatred, and ignorance of dharma. Specifically, the root causes are comprehended by are removed by comprehending that the five aggregates that we talked about earlier are actually of a nature, dukkha, and anatta nature. In other words, you you comprehend, excuse me, you attain nibbana by realizing that the five aggregates, your entire experience of reality, will not lead to absolute everlasting happiness, is a source of suffering, and it has no value and has no worth. That's how you attain nibbana. So that's how you overcome the central problem of existence. Now, the fourth truth, which we'll look into more later, says that there is a way that you end this problem of existence. And the way that you end this problem of existence is by walking the Eightfold Noble Path. That's the one and only way that you do it. The way that you do it is by walking the Eightfold Noble Path. So we'll talk about this more later, but let's just recap to summarize the Four Noble Truths. Number one, there is no beginning or end to existence, and the overwhelming majority of our time is spent in realms where suffering is the dominant state. Number two, the central problem of existence occurs when someone believes that the five aggregates, in other words, our entire experience of reality, are um, of nature, sukha, and utter nature, which means possible to have be the way that you want it to be, a source of pleasure and happiness, and therefore valuable. Number three, it is possible to overcome this central problem of existence by mo- removing the three root causes of suffering, which is greed, hatred, and ignorance of the true nature of reality. This occurs, you remove these root causes when you fully realize that the five aggregates are actually of the opposite nature. In other words, they are not a source of absolute everlasting fulfillment. You cannot have them be the way you want them to be. So long as you pursue things in the world with the perception that you can, you will suffer, and therefore, it's worthless. There's no value to be had. And number four, you do this by walking the eight form. Unless you stop, 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 Try and really actively engage with it and come up with your own examples, and then things will start to click. Okay, 
the next episode, we're going to look into the three characteristics and all of this should hopefully start to make more sense. See you soon.